From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Recent rains aren't enough to quench thirsty reservoirs. That's partly because of 40 million people depending upon the Colorado River and the fact that we're dealing with very old water compacts and a changing climate. And so it would take an amazing winter with heavy snows to really start to do anything to fill those reservoirs up. And frankly, the demand is so great now on the Colorado, I don't know that we'll ever see Mead and Powell fill up again. Our regular climate chat with Denver 7's Mike Nelson today, then a life-altering decision. It's like one of those things when you look back, you didn't know really what it meant at the time, but as years go by, you know exactly what it meant. They were all telling me, don't go, you know? That's from a new storytelling project at CPR. Hi, I'm Dan Brooks, and I donated my car to CPR. The car I donated was a 1996 Ford Explorer that my son had been driving. When he went off to college, he didn't need the car, and it was old enough and duct taped together enough that the rest of us in the family didn't feel safe driving it, and it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Didn't matter if the side door didn't open or the bumper was falling off. Somebody gave me a call, and they came and picked it up. Donate your car. It's easy at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Record scorching heat and record rainfall in parts of Colorado. It's a summer of weather extremes so far. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson and I are at Denver's Confluence Park, where the South Platte and the Cherry Creek meet for our regular conversation about the interplay between weather and climate. Mike, it's nice to have found some shade with you. Oh, it's a beautiful day out here, Ryan, and not in the 90s for a change, which is very, very nice. What stands out to you about this place, particularly the water rushing behind you, especially at this time? Well, it's an important spot right here. I mean, certainly this was the nexus of why Denver is where it is, because of water and the settlers and the Native Americans that would have been here because of the ability to have water in a high desert. Are you surprised right now by the flows here? I'm gratified by the flows here. Uh, The rains that we've had recently have been very helpful, and we're actually out of the drought, at least in the central part of Colorado, kind of along and just west of I-25. So we've been very blessed, unlike other parts of the west, to get some fairly decent precipitation this summer. But it is spotty when you look at who it's benefiting and where it's benefiting around the state very spotty and it always is. I had uh, a week ago two and a half inches of rain at my house in southeast Aurora and the airport officially had 13 one hundredths of an inch. It was an amazing thing to have seen flooded streets in Denver. Meanwhile I was visiting some friends in Littleton completely perhaps blissfully unaware of the chaos taking place along I-70. A roof had collapsed because of flooding at a grocery store What is the picture for, say, the Western Slope, Southern Colorado, which have been in drought as well? It's improved a little bit. The rains that we had mid-August, early to mid-August, actually hit the Southeast Plains fairly well. So it's eased there. I'd say the drought has eased statewide, but it's not gone, except in that little narrow corridor north-south, just west of I-25. It's not enough water to be replenishing the reservoirs as much as they've been depleted. 
That's partly because of 40 million people depending upon the Colorado River and the fact that we're dealing with very old water compacts and a changing climate. And so it would take an amazing winter with heavy snows to really start to do anything to fill those reservoirs up. And frankly, the demand is so great now on the Colorado, I don't know that we'll ever see Mead and Powell fill up again. Speaking of Mead and Powell, they remain at all-time lows due to drought, climate change as well, and as you've said, overuse. Just this last week, the federal government said they'd be making water cuts that would have a big effect in Arizona and Nevada. The feds may make other water cuts in the coming months that affect other states, including Colorado. But you're right to point to snow. So we think of rain certainly as replenishing, but the snowpack is kind of where it's at, isn't it? Absolutely. It's all about the winter snows. And with climate change, one of the issues that we also face is that we're getting an earlier meltout of those snows. And that can have an impact on how much really ends up in the reservoirs. Because if the season ends sooner and we start to go over to rain, that just doesn't do the same thing because the storms are just not as big. A big winter snowstorm is covering thousands of square miles where a summer rainstorm is covering a portion of a neighborhood. And you say reservoirs, snow itself, snowpack is a reservoir. In fact, it's the greatest reservoir in our state. It certainly is, and I'm a little bit optimistic for this coming winter. It's very early. I mean, we're not even to Labor Day yet, but some of the very early indications are we'll probably continue with a La Nina pattern, which is we've talked about in the past, more of a northwesterly jet stream flow. That tends to favor the central and northern mountains, Summit County area, Steamboat, at the expense, unfortunately, of the southwestern mountains. But perhaps we'll get enough good storms to come in and give us at least a normal snowpack, an average snowpack. You say early indications make you optimistic. What what are you looking at? Uh, is it a crystal ball? Sometimes it is a bit <laughs> of like that because it's so far in advance. We're looking at the sea surface temperatures, mostly in the Pacific. And there are some other things that kind of drift around the world periodically, these waves in the atmosphere that can foster stormy weather patterns. It's a little voodoo when you get out there at three to six months ahead of time, and that's why things can change, and it's very, very early. In future episodes, Ryan, we can revisit the winter forecast. Yes, there's a little bit of time. Let's enjoy the warmth for a bit longer. Has anything stood out about the monsoon pattern that we've been in? Anything exceptional about it? Actually, to the west of us, Arizona has had a very good monsoon this summer. We've caught bits and pieces of it kind of coming in in fits and starts, but they've had a lot of precipitation down there. It's somewhat eased the drought in that part of the country as well, but it was such an exceptional drought that we've put a dent in it, but it certainly has not gone away. Meanwhile, these extreme temperatures that we have experienced with a little bit of relenting here and there, we know that there are just more days of 100 degree plus temperatures. I mean, this used to be more of a rarity. One a year used to be a lot. I mean, many years of my 31 years of broadcasting here, we didn't have any 100 degree temperatures. We've had five already this year, and we've already had 52 days that have been above 90, and I believe 30 that have been above 95. I think about my uh, home, which was built in 1930. I live on the second floor of this modest apartment condo building and it is a reminder to me of how climate change is going to spark changes and represents a real sea change 
even though we're landlocked, uh, from the sorts of architecture, the sorts of infrastructure, be it air conditioning, what have you, that Denver didn't have to think about that now it does, and, and much of Colorado. Even when we moved here in the early 90s, the realtor said, uh, do you want to build the house with air conditioning? Because a lot of people don't. And I don't think that question is asked very much anymore. What did you say? We decided we had little kids and allergies and that type of thing. So we went ahead and put the AC in. I bet you're grateful. Uh, we are, we're grateful about it. But honestly, back then, just in 1991, there was still a question of whether or not you needed it. Just open your windows. Summer officially ends in one more month. Can we expect any other extreme weather? I'm thinking, you know, twisters, hail. Have you seen much hail? We have not had a lot of hailstorms this summer. Not a lot of really big severe thunderstorms or tornado outbreaks, only a few. So I take that as a good thing because large hail and tornadoes, although for meteorologists, they excite us. A lot of people would prefer to not have the large hail. By this time in August, we're getting toward the tail end of thunderstorm season. We'll still get a few more weeks of them, but the sun angle is getting a little bit lower in the sky. The upper atmosphere is still quite warm this time of year, so the instability that we have in the earlier May and June and July is not really there. So fewer thunderstorms, and frankly, I always tell people if you're going to get married outside, do it in September, because that's generally the quietest month of the year. What did you say? The sun angle. I'm kind of hearkening back, I think, maybe to college astronomy. Well, as we get closer to fall, of course, the sun is getting lower in the sky. The days are getting shorter. And so it's at a lower angle rather than directly coming down. And so you get it more of a glancing blow, if you will. So it doesn't heat the ground as effectively as it does when the sun is higher up in the sky. So the ground is not getting as much heat. It's not causing the hot air to rise like a hot air balloon. That's what eventually builds into a cumulus cloud, builds into a thunderstorm. I see. So more stability ahead. I could use stability in something, Mike. Thank you. (laughs) I can at least give you stability in the weather as we get into the fall. Not always, but once in a while. Now, another thing is our earliest snowfall is the 3rd and 4th of September, and that was back in 1961. So we're not that far away from, you know, talking about snow. Okay. Mixed advice for the people getting married in September. (laughs) Well, yeah, that one probably wouldn't have worked out too well for somebody back in 1961, but If they're still married, then they've had a long life together. Well, I think I'll go dip my toe, or at least my finger, at the confluence here of the South Platte and the Cherry Creek. Thanks so much. Nice to see you, Mike. All right. We'll talk again next month, Ryan. Always a pleasure. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson joins us regularly to talk about the confluence of climate and weather. When we come back, a search for storytellers who may not yet think of themselves that way. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The CPR News climate team recently invited a group of listeners to help reforest the burn scar of 2020's Calwood fire. And we were all surprised by what we found. I can't imagine a more beautiful setting to do anything. It just makes you glad to be alive. I'm Miguel Otarola, and CPR News is covering the impacts of climate change across Colorado, including the ways that we're fighting it. Sign up for CPR's Climate Weekly Newsletter at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The founder of StoryCorps on NPR has said that listening is an act of love. And being the one listened to can be transformational. Well, that's the idea behind a new project from CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. They are collecting Coloradans' stories 
Community audio producer Luis Antonio Perez is looking for people to share who they are in their own words. He also has a taste of a story he's already recorded. Hi, Luis. Hey, Ryan. This sort of project, I mean, it, it really is who you are, isn't it? Mm. You know, I don't like to talk about myself, <laughs> but yeah, I really, I really do love storytelling. I mean, my whole life, uh, back in my hometown of Chicago, I, we, I would participate in this like uh, this burgeoning community of storytellers, where what we do is instead of doing like a poetry slam, mm-hmm. you know, where people get up and share their poems, it's the exact same scenario except people share their stories. Would these be in like bars, cafes? All kinds of places, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bookstores, libraries, bars, cafes, any context where you can set up a microphone and stand and and share with folks. Which means that you also develop the ability to help people see the value in their own stories. I think that like you ask people about their own stories and sometimes they're really modest or maybe even a little embarrassed. Yeah, sometimes they are, especially if you're trying to get real folks, you know, to share their stories, real voices, because there are plenty of people out there who are just practically professional pro-am performers that go on stage and they're just amazing. But, you know, all of us have stories Mm. and some of us maybe just need a little bit of, I wouldn't even say help. It's just sort of helping folks see uh, where their story can have the greatest impact. So sometimes when I organize events, I'd make sure to bring in regular old folks in to tell their story and do just a little bit of coaching. Wow, this part of your story is really impactful. And sometimes they don't realize how much of an impact it can have. And we sort of work together to uh, shape the story in a way that uh, it'll be fun to listen to. We're going to listen to one of the stories you've put together for this latest project centered on a Colorado named David Coleman. How did you meet David? I met David through an organization called Remerge, who works with folks that are uh, starting over after being released from prison. Mm. And we had, it was an amazing night. We had an event in the basement of the Tattered Cover on Colfax. And the theme for the night was old life, new life. And I'm just going to let David tell his story. What's up, Eric? How's everybody doing today? Good, that's great. Uh, Man, I'm really humbled to be here this evening. And uh, if I don't say nothing else tonight, I need to say the name David Wayne Clark. That is my victim. Uh, I get to be up here today and I live a life and he don't get to be here because of a choice that I made over 35 years ago. And so when I tell my story, I try to not only even after this night and before this night live my life, not only in honor of him, my kids, my family, and myself. And so I try to represent all of us in a way, in a dignified way, to bring something good at something happened so terrible that night. I'm originally from Gary, Indiana, moved out here in 1980 as a 16-year-old kid. Graduated from George Washington High School, great grades in high school, kid of a pastor. My dad was a minister. My mom was an evangelist. Never been in any trouble with the law. And then right after high school, I joined the United States Marine Corps. I went right there, signed up, did three years. And while I was in, I started self-medicating cocaine, alcohol, 
and it got out of control. And I wound up getting discharged from the Marine Corps with a general under honorable discharge. And so I come home to my wife. I had married and had two children. My daughter was a little bit over one and a half years old. My son was six months old. And so I get the stupid idea that I want to go out and rob a drug dealer. And I didn't have to do that. I was working. We had an apartment. The bills was being paid. But I did it anyway. And so I remember vividly in the bathroom putting this sawed-off shotgun under my coat. And I had one, a belt from my pants. I had tied it around. And I'm trying to sneak out of the living room. And my wife was sitting there at the table. And my daughter was in the living room floor. She's jumping around. And my son was crawling. And so I'm trying to make it out of the door. And my wife jumped up. Honey, honey, hold up. Give me a kiss. And so she jumps in front of me between me and the door. And she went to try kissing me. And she feels this gun. And she started just freaking out, man, freaking out. And, uh, and I told her, no, don't worry about it. She said, what is this? What is this? She's trying to open my coat. And I'm trying to push her away. And then all of a sudden, I hear all this racket to the left of me, and I look, and I see my daughter just acting up, screaming, crying, jumping up, just going crazy, and my son is just crawling in circles. And that was really bizarre to me. It's like one of those things when you look back in life, you didn't know really what it meant at the time, but as years go by, you know exactly what it meant. They were all telling me, don't go, you know. And I just pushed her out of the way, and I went anyway. My kids, they felt her energy, and they knew, I feel, that something bad was going to happen that night. And so I went on out and uh, went to rob this drug dealer, and it was nothing like you imagined. Ended up killing David Wayne Clark. He had the same name that I had. We were the same age. All of these things, you know, that we had in common. And uh, I eventually got a life sentence for it. And so I wound up starting my prison term. And to me, as a kid, I'm trying to figure, how did this happen? How did a guy that come from a small town come out here to Colorado, graduate from high school, good in sports? How did all this happen, you know? And uh, so I said, you know what? I'm going to try to make the best of it. So my first six years in prison, I went to college. Regis University had uh, many campuses out there. And got myself a bachelor's degree in social psychology. And what's crazy is that I continued to take programs. And so I got really, really smart by enlightening myself in prison. And my peers started recognizing. And then I was started lifting weights. I went in prison wearing 170 pounds. And I put on 50 pounds of muscle. And so all of the other convicts in prisons started calling me Big Dave. You know, I put on all this muscle, and I was pretty sharp, you know, from the schooling that I took. I felt that I could talk with anybody. The crazy thing about it is I didn't grow in the area that mattered the most, and that was right here. My personal character integrity was still lacking, and I didn't know that. I was listening to the hype from everybody that seen me. I took all these programs in prison, and they were telling me, man, you should deserve a clemency, man. Look at all the things you've accomplished. I've had a locker box full of certifications and certificates that I obtained, and all it took was just a little bit of nudging for me to act out again. And in some ways, I felt that I was worse off after 20 years of incarceration than when I first came in. And so right around that 20-year mark, I wind up getting, going to a program called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And that program, was, to me, was like a mirror. It showed me, and they started asking me questions. What's your values? How do you want to be remembered? I couldn't answer any of them because I didn't have any. 
I was still very, very reactive, and I was disappointed at the age of 40 that I haven't grown in any of those areas. And so I started the makeover, and I started really trying to find out how I want to be remembered, how some integrity will my kids respect me, and that I respect myself. Because the man that I seen in the mirror, I did not love, I did not respect, I did not trust, because I broke every promise that I ever made to myself and others. And as I started growing and trying to adopt the seven habit principles in my life, I began to look in the mirror and started the beginning to say, well, you know what, I'm feeling okay. I'm not doing dope in prison. I'm putting down the shady deals. I'm not keeping myself armed with an ice pick. I used to bury a knife in prison, in a prison yard or have it hid in the ceiling. I started letting those things go. And so the progress and the courage and the character that I started developing, other people started noticing. But I still didn't believe in myself at that time. I'm thinking, you know, okay, they seeing too much. They putting way too much on this, man. And all of a sudden, the warden started trusting me. And I was shaving that Sunday morning. It was Father's Day. And the guards came to my house, and I thought they were joking. They said, the warden sent us here to take you to see your father. And I said, what? And he told the guards, do not put no handcuffs on this man, no weapons, Take him to see his father. He let me go outside of the prison. I'm a high security inmate with a life sentence. He allowed me to go to my father's hospice at our house. And we went out all the way to Aurora from Canyon City. And when I walked in there, my dad was laying in their bed. And he just started smiling, man, because he didn't come up and visit a lot. I don't know if he could stand seeing his son in prison and probably never get out. And I just got behind on the side of the bed and held his hand. And he would not let my hand go, man. And for the first time, I felt the connection with my father. I felt that he was proud of me. He understood that these things don't happen. That a person like me, and they just let me come outside the prison. And I even told guys, take pictures of this, because nobody's going to believe it. The guards got around my dad's bed. They was in their uniform. We were all there. And that wasn't the only, that wasn't the only thing. I was one of the first inmates they allowed to go out and do strategic planning with staff. We went out and helped, and they never let an inmate do that before. And then I started realizing, you know, maybe I am this person that they see, that I couldn't see in myself. And then all of a sudden, I continued to progress in prison, and then someone mentioned it to the, to the governor, and uh, some letters was written, and he wound up giving me a clemency. And uh, otherwise, I would have been in prison the rest of my life. And now here it is, I'm out. I got the clemency. I'm working at a place called Second Chance. I just got promoted. I'm a program manager. Man, I do all these big, cool things. I got me a car. And you know what? I'm still humble, though, you know? Because like I said in the beginning, I know the impact that I had on so many people, you know, my Son grew up without me. My daughter grew up without me. I got a grandbaby. We FaceTime a lot, and I get to see her. And uh, I just know that I want to, so many people put their name on me, not only the governor, even my family. And I know they're watching me and saying, is, is he going to fall? Some people, you know, my peers, is he going to break down? Is this really true? This story is too good to be true. But it's true. I know what it feels like to have integrity. I know what it feels like to have character, and I don't want to trade that for anything. And so when I talk about transformation, 
There was not one moment where I made the change. It's a gradual moment, and I'm continuing to grow. And each day I continue to work on those things that I need to work on and make one choice after another. And so I appreciate you guys taking the time to hear me today. And you guys have a great evening. David Coleman shared his story with CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. Producer Luis Antonio Perez is back with us now. What has surprised you as you've started collecting these stories? You know, everyone has a story. And when we think about someone like David, there's like a lot of preconceptions that come with that, Mm -hmm. of who David is, the kind of person that he is. And, you know, David is just someone who's trying to be a positive influence in the community, in his community, and being very active about it, you know, being self-reflective and thinking about how, in the context that his the turns that his life has taken, how can he be the most positive influence in his world? It occurs to me that the heart of this is what we mean when we say corrections. Mm. What do you think about that? You know, that that's a really interesting way to frame it, Ryan, because um, ha- having met all the storytellers, because we had a, David was just one among uh, four other storytellers that we had that night, and everyone had the, a similar experience uh, working through re-entry after life in prison. And Every single person that was on stage that night was making an intentional effort to be a positive influence in their community. Mm. I mean, we all think about being a good person or trying to be a good person or trying to do good things. But these folks are very active in the community of trying to help folks that are just like them. Now, this storytelling project of yours uh, goes well beyond that as a subject, Mm -hmm. the idea of sort of before and after. So what's next for it? We're, we're planning more storytelling events across Colorado. We're looking for storytellers and nonprofits that maybe have any ideas for communities that we can connect with. Because as a community audio producer here at uh, Colorado Public Radio, I really want to find ways to bring voices that we may not hear otherwise. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a newsroom and these other services where we hear many, many, many voices, but there's still gaps there, you know, and I want to get boots on the ground, get out in these communities and connect with these folks and these nonprofits and let folks share their own stories. Because you asked me before about surprises. And the thing that surprised me most maybe is that folks just need an invitation to speak, an invitation to share their stories. And that's that's what we're trying to do. This notion of individuals, but also community organizations reaching out uh, makes a lot of sense. And the way you can do that is to email Community Voices at CPR.org. And then that'll go to you, Luis. You got it. Okay, yep. Community Voices at CPR.org if you or someone you're connected with has a really good story to tell. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ryan. Luis Antonio Perez is a community audio producer with CPR's Audio Innovation Studio. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with whether a project to clean up historically polluted neighborhoods is actually working. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. Finding your way by not fitting in. That's what worked for Colorado filmmaker Denise Soler Cox. I used to tell myself, I'm going to do something really great with my life one day. And all of this that's happening, everything 
that it would all lead to something amazing. The latest episode of the new CPR podcast, Quien Are We?, everywhere you listen and in the Colorado Public Radio app. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Neighborhoods near industrial parts of Metro Denver are historically polluted. Many of the residents are lower income and people of color. That's where the Environmental Justice Program comes in. State lawmakers created it a year ago to clean things up. But is it working? Here is CPR's climate reporter, Miguel Otarula. It's the first Friday of August, and the Santa Fe Arts District in Denver is filled with people scoping out the monthly art walk. I'm ducking inside Museo de las Américas to meet up with Sandra Ruiz Parrilla, who curated art for a collaborative exhibit titled Salud y Justicia, Health and Justice. The paintings she made with her art therapy group are a shocking mix of colors, shapes, and materials. Each one represents the artist's emotional connection to their Latino heritage, their homes, and their natural surroundings. I had first met Sandra in October, as she led a group of two dozen state officials on a tour of her Globeville neighborhood. She was speaking in Spanish through an interpreter, pointing out the constant noise and smells that came from nearby construction and traffic. Ten months later, she tells me that little has been done to solve those problems. It's hard to really fight and raise your voice, because they don't really hear us in our neighborhoods. Behind the scenes, state and local officials say Colorado has made a lot of progress since passing the Environmental Justice Act last year. It allocates more than $2.5 million for environmental justice work this year, much of which is being overseen by the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. So far, the department has hired a team of environmental justice staffers, published a new data tool to track environmental hazards, and formed advisory groups. Those groups will send policy recommendations to the governor's office and legislature later this year. If you're not making it part of your mission, if you're not making it part of your goals and you're not spending resources on it, it's likely to not happen. That's State Senator Faith Winter, a Democrat from Westminster and a sponsor of the legislation that created the Environmental Justice Program. She says it's been a culture shift for agencies to start to earn the trust of people like Ruiz Parrilla, who live in polluted neighborhoods. She says she hopes those neighborhoods apply for $400,000 in grants to install air pollution sensors and other projects to reduce pollution. Those grants are expected to be announced by the end of the year. These grants need to be very locally driven because what might work for Elyria Swanson and Globeville and the environmental injustices they've dealt with are probably very different than what works for Pueblo. Ruiz Parrilla, for instance, has spent the last few years trying to cut down pollution in Globeville and remove soil that was contaminated by former industries. In Pueblo, residents worry about high utility bills and hits to the local economy from the eventual closure of the state's largest coal-fired power plant. To find these issues, the state used its new data tool to rank the environmental risk of counties and census tracts based on several health indicators, including asthma hospitalizations, cancer rates, and proximity to traffic or other sources of pollution. David Rojas is an environmental epidemiologist and professor at Colorado State University who worked on creating the tool. He hopes people use it to understand environmental risks in their neighborhoods and to ask their elected officials what is being done about them. Again, is my, my idea is that to triggers more questions and triggers more demands to improve. Uh, but by far, it's not the, the, the solution to the environmental injustices. 
The new data tool shows Pueblo faces more environmental hazards than other counties, largely due to having the highest asthma hospitalization rates in the state. That same tool shows that Illyria Swansea's residents are closer to hazardous waste facilities than nearly all other neighborhoods in Colorado. Ruiz Parrilla passes by those facilities every day. She says she sometimes gets overwhelmed by all the problems in her neighborhood that need to be fixed. We don't want them to see us with pity. We don't want them to see us as contaminated, because we're not. What we want them to do is to fix the problem, and it hasn't happened yet. Members of the state's environmental justice program say there's a lot of work left to be done. Meanwhile, Ruiz Parrilla says she'll continue advocating for her neighborhood, whether that's by inviting more state officials to see the environmental problems firsthand, or by using art to tell her story. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. And when we come back, Elvis Presley's curious connections to Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, died 45 years ago this month. The thousands of mourning Presley fans who had converged on Memphis came from all over the nation. Most of them were not wealthy, and so they had to drive for long hours over hundreds of miles, some in battered autos. They packed up the kids and the family dog, even left their jobs to be here. That was CBS News at the time. Today, we listen back to a story about Elvis's friendships in Denver. He was even made an honorary police captain here. Former Deputy Chief Robert Cantwell is the author of The Elvis Presley I Knew. In 1970, Elvis played a a concert at the Denver Coliseum, and Cantwell was assigned to guard the 10th floor of the Radisson Hotel where Elvis was staying. Cantwell told me in 2016 he was detailed to a desk near the hotel's elevator. The elevator opened up and three people got off of it. And one was dressed like Elvis and the other two, uh, I think Red West and a guy named Dave Hebler, they were with him. These are his bodyguards. And they had all the appropriate ID cards on their around their necks. But the person who ended up being Elvis did not have one on him. Sometimes they test your security, and I didn't know if they were doing that at this time or not. But anyway, I asked for his security pass to be on that floor, and they read West and uh, jumped in and said, well, this is Elvis. And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I've never met him before, and there's a bunch of impersonators on the first floor. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. Well, Elvis is sort of laughing, and he said, show him my ID. <laughs> so... They pulled out the credentials to, you know, to be on the floor, which said Elvis Presley. And so with that said, we let him go on, you know, onto the floor. And that's how I first met him. I love that you were so thorough as a cop that you checked Elvis's ID. And it sounded like he was pretty nice about it, actually. Oh, he was great. I mean, his bodyguards were not very happy or pleased. But how did we know? For sure. Yeah. I'm imagining Elvis at this time in his career you know, wearing like a white jeweled jumpsuit. 
Is that what he wore when he wasn't on stage, or did he have, like, street clothes? <laughs> well, I, the only time I've seen him in street clothes, as I would describe street clothes, was when we went and played racquetball in that with him later on. You know, he always had that high collar on, you know, whatever shirt he wore, whether it be white, blue, or, you know, whatever, he always had a high, a high collar. Let's get to why Elvis needed protection beyond his own bodyguards, um, why police were on the detail. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, he didn't have a choice uh, for security at the Coliseum. You know, I mean, that's a whole different uh, uh, group of people that require X amount of uh, police officers at the Coliseum for concerts. I see. Then at the hotel, they need security, too. The hotel wanted security because they knew they'd going to get a lot of people trying to get in to see Elvis. And Elvis had received death threats, hadn't he? You know, he... He told us that he's always getting death threats, you know. I mean, most entertainers do, you know, and so how serious they they are, you know, I don't know, nor did he ever say how serious it was, but he always said that's why he carried a gun. (laughs) At this point, he's playing a mixture of his golden hits and cover tunes, from the Beatles to the Righteous Brothers. I want to play something from that era, his 1970 tour, which he ended at the Denver Coliseum, and to put this in context, his big hit in 1969 was still pretty fresh, uh, Suspicious Minds. We can go on together with suspicious minds. And we can build our dreams on suspicious minds. You saw Elvis getting ready for the show. Did he have a ritual? Well, when I saw him get ready for the show... He didn't really care to have anybody around him, you know, because he was, he told me he psyched himself up, you know, and you could see it in him. You know, he'd be moving his arms, his legs, and just psyching himself up to uh, go on when they played uh, the entrance song. Yeah. So you eventually did get to go to the Coliseum and see him. Yes. He asked us if we were going to the concert, and I said, no, we're not going to be able to go. We're signed here to keep people off the desk. He said, I want you to go. And I said, no. I said, this is our job, and we're going to make sure it's safe for you when you get back. Well, it wasn't 10 minutes later that Jerry Kennedy came over to us and uh, said, well, I guess you're going to the concert. I said, we are? He said, yeah, Elvis wants you to go with him, and we're going to move two other officers up here to the desk. So off we went to the concert with him. Jerry Kennedy, your boss at the Denver Police Department. Uh, Eventually, you became friends with Elvis. How did a friendship develop? You know, how you make friends, I, I don't know the answer to that. You know, some, there's just an attraction sometimes that brings two people together. And, and Elvis, um, what he saw in me, I'm not sure. Nobody else was ever sure either, <laughs> except we had some general background, uh, family backgrounds that he liked to talk to me about. Hmm. What was that? Well, you know, he came from a very poor family. And uh, his dad was incarcerated, like mine was, and they moved a lot, like we did. So, you know, we had a lot of similarities in uh, our backgrounds. That, and he loved his mother. I mean, he really loved his mother. Mm-hmm. And so he liked to talk to me about his mother and, and that, and I liked to talk to him about my mother, you know. I guess this friendship you developed leads to photos of Elvis in a police uniform. He was made an honorary captain in Denver. 
I have to say, it's a little surreal to see Elvis in a Denver police uniform smiling widely. How did those images come about? Well, the next day uh, after the concert, he wasn't in a hurry to leave, and he he told us, hey, call your buddies if they want to come over and get photographs or whatever. Then he had his guns. He wanted to show everybody his guns, and we took him over to uh, meet the chief. And with that, I mean, he... He bought his own uniform. We didn't buy him one. He bought his own. He went down and bought one where we all got our uniforms. When the chief gave him his badge, you know, then he put it on the uniform. You also have a photo of him with a set of his guns. He gave guns his gifts. I want to say that Smithsonian Magazine has a story that Elvis met President Nixon in 1970, and one of Nixon's aides took notes during the meeting and told the magazine that Elvis was concerned about drug culture and asked the president for a badge from the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, as it was called then. What do you think was at the heart of his fascination with badges, uniforms, guns? I mean, was he a police officer at heart? (laughs) Yes, he was. He talked to me a lot about that, that he always thought he would become a police officer, but God, these are his words, God blessed him with a voice. I said, yeah, I said, I always wanted to be a singer, but I guess I became a police officer. And he says, well, don't give up that day job to be a singer. <laughs> you know, and I said, okay. <laughs> but uh, he did. I mean, in fact, while we were there with him one time in uh, Graceland, he called the sheriff of Shelby County over, who came over with a couple of his deputies, playing clothes, and he told them uh, about a, some drug information he had heard in the people that he heard was doing it outside of town. We'll talk a little bit later about drugs because, of course, there was a lot of speculation around his death that he was on drugs and that that led to his demise. But um, in 1971, a Denver patrolman, this is Officer Merle Nading, was killed by a gunman on Colfax Avenue. And Elvis heard about this killing and and responded. He did. even donated the the money so they could finish the gym in his name, which he had started at District 2 gym. And so Elvis donated, I think it was like $5,000. You write that Elvis was more than a superstar to you. He was a true country gentleman. Um, Yes, he was. He cherished those that treated him as a normal person rather than as a meal ticket. Uh, Were you very aware of that? You know, because it's such an unusual thing to become friends with a superstar, and want to be clear that you just want to be his friend. You're not interested in money or, you know, fame or something. Yeah, right. Right. None of us were. But he he was uh, definitely a, a country southern gentleman. I mean, off of the stage, he was a, a different Elvis. You know, he was a superstar on the stage and a super friend off the stage. We didn't treat him like a, a star, you know, he didn't run around, hey, Elvis, what about this? Hey, Elvis, what's it like to be a singer? You know, we didn't do none of that. You know, we just talking like you and I are right now. Bob, there are a few stories of Elvis buying cars for people. Were you ever one of them? <laughs> yes, I was. What did he buy you? It was a 76 Cadillac Seville. Wow. What was your reaction when he did that? Well, my reaction was I didn't want it. What? You know, I, I just didn't, a couple of reasons, but one, I... As I say in the book, you know, I what was he going to ask in return? And that was a big concern of mine. And so until we got that straightened out, then I was happy. You're such a straight-laced cop, because you're, you're thinking, you know, I don't want this to look like bribery, is essentially what you're saying. 
Well, not about bribery, but I mean more of a, he, he could ask, uh, oh, for example, uh, we're going to go skiing or, or on the snowmobiles up here. Would you get a hold of the the cops up here in, in Vail and, and make sure they don't bother or something like that? But it was clear to you eventually that he did not want anything back, I suppose, and that's when you accepted the car? It was very clear, you know, that uh, he was very upset with me for questioning why he would give me a Cadillac, because what could I give him in return? He was very upset with it. But he wanted me to know that he gave it to me because I was his friend. Elvis died August 16th, 1977. Uh, How did you hear the news, and, and, and what was your reaction? Well, I heard the news from uh, Jerry Kennedy. He got a call, I believe it was from uh, Elvis's dad, Vernon, and we flew right out, you know, to be at the Graceland. And while we were there, you know, we uh, we stayed around Elvis. We weren't working. They asked us uh, very kindly if we would stay by Elvis's casket, which was in a, in a room that Elvis used to have his piano in when we were there many other times, but... And I think they, at that time they wanted to make sure that someone didn't say, like they did say afterwards, that uh, he's still alive. Huh. And so, but I can attest that he's he's deceased because I had to touch him. I told Ron, I said, man, I got to touch him. I mean, I know somebody's going to say something, and I'm going to say, yeah, I touched him. I know he was cold. Ron was your, your partner uh, on the police yes. force. There was a lot of speculation about prescription drugs that were in his system, but also, you know, his touring, his weight gain. What What are your thoughts? Well, I can honestly say that they never saw him uh, under the influence of uh, drugs. I mean, he was always very clear eyes, clear voice. I never saw him drink any alcoholic beverages. He always drank mineral water that he brought in from Memphis and cases. But uh, one time, and the only time drugs ever came up around me was we were in Vegas, and it was a, a late late show. They're all late with Elvis. And anyway, next thing I know, I'm sitting on the stairway just watching everybody have a good time when uh, all of a sudden I, I get this uh, hug, you know, and I say, who's that? Who's, who's hugging me? You know, and you, as a police officer, you know, you turn around real fast like you're going to punch somebody. And it was Elvis, and he was asking why I wasn't dancing and all that. I asked him, Elvis, how do you how do you keep these strange hours? He said, Well, when I'm off the stage, you know, I just can't go to sleep. He said, I'm I'm just hyper. And he said, Sometimes he said, Not all the time, but sometimes I'll take a sleep aid, you know, to help me get to sleep. And that's the only time I ever heard him talk about anything to do with drugs. That is Robert Cantwell, former Denver police officer and author of The Elvis Presley I Knew. We spoke in 2016. Elvis has another connection to Colorado, his favorite sandwich. Nick Anderlakis met Elvis at a theme restaurant called the Colorado Mine Company. He was 16 at the time and was working there as a cook when Elvis and his entourage came in at 2 in the morning. We had a thing on the menu called the Fool's Gold Sandwich. It was put on just for a for a gag item. It was um, our restaurant was a high end steakhouse, and we needed something funny on the menu. And the fool's gold consisted of a four pound sandwich, a pound of peanut butter, a pound of jelly, a pound of bacon, on a one pound sourdough loaf. We cut it in four pieces. We serve it in a miner's tin. 
you know, when you when you think about Elvis coming in, you think you'd offer him steak, lobster. For some odd reason, I just said, Elvis, do you want to try our fool's gold sandwich? And uh, he tried it, and he loved it. He loved the sandwich. <laughs> he ate two pieces, which was two pounds of the sandwich. What was the cost of a fool's gold? Not that Elvis would have batted an eye at whatever the cost was, but... The last time before we closed the restaurant, our fool's gold was sixty four ninety five on the menu. Sixty four ninety five. Price negotiable. I understand you have brought, is it the whole thing, a full fool's gold sandwich with you? We, we made two full fool's gold sandwiches and cut them up for your crew today. Okay, open this up for us. So this is on French bread? Yeah, that is actually sourdough French bread. Okay. Yeah. We're using strawberry jelly now. Okay. Peanut butter. Peanut butter and bacon. And bacon. Yeah, very simple sandwich. Mmm. You know the... Oh, God, it's going to be impossible to talk with the peanut butter. I'm surprised Elvis could tell you how he felt about the sandwich. The peanut butter and jelly reminds me of being a kid, and then the bacon reminds me I'm an adult. I like that. So he would come back well, to he... the mine company for this sandwich. He was up in Vail skiing or snowmobiling sometimes, and he would come down and eat sometimes. Would he ever play music at the restaurant? Uh, one night that I remember, he played music. He played. He actually sang. He didn't play the piano, but Roger Wolf was there, and it was late. In, it was early in the morning, actually, and he uh, sang a little bit the piano. He was uh, while Roger was playing. Did you request a song? Yes, I requested "My Way." My way, oh, like the the one Frank Sinatra made. Yes, yeah. I planned each charted course, each careful step. Along the byway, one more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times... Nick Anderlakis speaking with me in 2016. He also told me that Elvis at one point ordered two dozen of those fool's gold sandwiches for his daughter Lisa Marie's eighth birthday. As for Nick, he opened Nick's Cafe, which was a longtime Elvis-themed restaurant in Golden, and continued to serve the Fool's Gold. Nick's Cafe closed just this past March, after more than 30 years, and donated some of its collection to History Colorado. Elvis Presley died 45 years ago this month. I've laughed and cried. I've had my fill. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. No, not me. I did it my